Here we go. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is Agenda 23. I'm Mackenzie Feldman, and you have me and John Eichert here. Hi, I'm, I'm John Eichert. Welcome to Agenda 23. I'm a emeritus professor, which means I'm retired uh, from the University of Missouri. I had a 30-year academic career before I retired in, two, in the year 2000. Retired from the University of Missouri, but I was also at North Carolina State, Oklahoma State, University of Georgia, University of Missouri. And the last half of my academic career, and, and ever since then, ever since I retired, I've been working on issues of which I call sustainability, agriculture sustainability, economic sustainability. But my work has always included some emphasis on agricultural policy because it's so important to the whole issue of agriculture. So I'm, I'm hoping in this series of podcasts that we can focus on policy issues and I'll just add whatever I can from my experience of the past that kind of coming from the perspective of economic sustainability, but also the broader policy issues. And I'm Mackenzie. I run a nonprofit called Herbicide Free Campus, and we work with students to eliminate herbicides. I'm equally passionate about food policy, and we really wanted to start this podcast so we can talk together about the future of the food system in the United States, and really so I could learn from people like John and all the amazing guests that we're going to bring on this show. So thank you for tuning in. And today, it's a pretty important day to start our podcast. We really want to get this going right away to talk about Tom Vilsack. If you're tuning in, you might be following current USDA food policy, farm bill, all that stuff, or you might know nothing about it. And so this podcast is for everyone in between, and we're really going to break down what we're talking about. So today, we're talking about Tom Vilsack, which is former USDA secretary under Obama for eight years. And just in the past few days, we learned that that is who Biden is picking for his USDA secretary. John, what are people thinking about this? What was your first reaction when you heard this news? Well, I I knew there had been quite a bit of controversy. The sources I'd seen, there's quite a bit of speculation about who Biden might pick as the secretary of agriculture. And kind of the discussion was going back and forth, mainly between Heidkamp, who was considered to be kind of more corporate leaning, and then uh, Marsha Fudge, who was considered to be more kind of the backing of the progressive candidates that really wanted to focus more on food security issues as opposed to kind of commercial agriculture issues. And I, I get the feeling that Tom Vilsack might have been seen by the Biden administration anyway as kind of a compromise between those two. I would say he's certainly closer to the corporate agriculture sector because of his past ties to the corporate agriculture when he was secretary of agriculture for two terms in the Obama administration. Uh, he had a reputation of having pretty close ties then with Monsanto and the other chemical companies. And then when he left USDA at the end of the Obama administration, then he went to work in a consulting role with a big, uh, I think it's a big dairy marketing operation, which is again, a corporate operation. So, you know, most people, particularly in the progressive movement would see him much more toward the, the corporate agriculture, agribusiness side than toward the food security issues inside of this nature. So I think that's kind of where it come from. And he's well known to a lot of people in agriculture policy areas because he did serve two terms through two administrations of the Obama administrations or two terms of the Obama administration. Yeah, the sources say that's why 
Biden chose him because he wanted someone who was already very well versed in this role that could kind of tackle the hunger crisis right away. I think Biden had referred to him uh, at some point during his campaign as the, uh, that Vilsack was his farmer whisperer, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you talk about first whisperer. He was uh, he was kind of uh, Biden's ear on what was going on in the farming community. And I suspect if he was Biden's ear on the farming community, it was a pretty much uh, agribusiness establishment, industrial agriculture message that Biden was hearing from Vilsack during his campaign. It shouldn't really come at a surprise to us because he's been on the campaign trail with Biden since the beginning. So when you say farming communities, I just want to kind of break that down a little bit. Even though Biden defeated Trump, we continue to lose these rural areas, uh, sometimes even by more than before, and Democrats can't really seem to figure out why. And then you get people like Vilsack, who's supposed to be for the people, for the farmers, who's just a bought out corporate really represents corporate food system and has been making a million dollars with the dairy industry since he's left the USDA. So why do you think Biden would have chosen him? And why? Yeah, why is it important um, that we should have and go with somebody else that can represent rural America? Well, I think there's there's sort of a, a misperception that's that somehow rather that that farm policy is the same thing as rural policy, that we're still dealing with a situation in which the majority of the people in rural areas are family farmers and that farm policies, uh, agricultural programs are basically supporting those independent family farmers. So whatever agriculture policies look kind of like a rural development policy. But I think that that's totally outdated. You can look up the percentages. I say, when you say anything these days, it's very easy to find the exact percentages on the internet for anybody that wants to go look. But as I recall, something like 15% of the population is, is rural population. Of that, only about 10% of the rural population then is actually farm population. So if you look at rural areas, there's only about 10% that's the farm population. And if you look at where agricultural programs go, where the, where the funds into agricultural programs go, specifically the commodity programs, but that's a big share of it, then about two-thirds of those, somewhere in the category of two-thirds of those, have been going to the top 10% of those that receive benefits, and only about 40% of the farmers actually receive, people that are counted as farmers in that 10% actually receive benefits. So when you talk about who the farm programs, the commodity programs that we've been supporting, who they actually support, there's actually less than half of the farmers out here that are people classified as farmers receiving any benefits. And probably only 10% of that half, or that would be what, 5% of the farmers are receiving a significant amount of benefits. And as much as, uh, you know, in terms of support of the rural population, that's a very small fraction. I did some calculations and indicated that, you know, if you look at the negative impacts of the industrial agricultural policies that have supported the industrialization of agriculture, up to 99% of the people in rural areas are being negatively impacted by farm programs where the benefits go basically to 1% or 1-2% of the people that actually live in rural areas. So farm programs as we have them today are not 
rural development programs. In fact, they're anti-rural development programs. And so I contend we really need fundamental change in farm policies if we're going to address the problems in rural areas. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for breaking that down. Do you think that there is any hope to make big change in these next four or even eight years in food policy, given that Vilsack is returning? How important is that role of secretary and what should we focus on now? Well, I think we need to give the Biden administration an opportunity because uh, Joe Biden has said consistently that he doesn't just want to go back. He talks about not building back, build back better. And so I think we have a responsibility, those of us that are concerned about the sustainability of agriculture and the viability and sustainability of rural communities, to try to do whatever we can to, to bring about a fundamental shift in that policy. And if Biden is serious about saying that he really wants to bring about fundamental change in a positive direction, and he has talked positively about dealing with issues of uh, climate change and maybe not going all the way with the Green New Deal, but in his early campaigning, he was talking about supporting the Green New Deal. And now he says he's got the, the Biden <laughs> New Deal, he argues, is uh, just as progressive as the Green New Deal. So the rhetoric was out there. And so if the taxpayer and the voters set about trying to hold him to the words and say, okay, even though you've got an agricultural secretary that knows how it used to be, then you also have an agricultural secretary that knows how government works and ought to be in a position to bring about and implement real change if that's what you're serious about. So I think there's a possibility that if you can bring enough public pressure on the Biden administration and try to hold the administration to its word of being a more progressive administration than the Obama administration, then it's something that we ought to pursue. I think there's a chance, and we have a new farm bill coming up in 2023, and now is the time that we really ought to be laying the groundwork and beginning the process of trying to shape a fundamentally different agenda for the farm bill in 2023 and try to get that done under the Biden administration. But even if you can't get it done in 2023, then you can build sort of the foundation of public support that in a new administration, 2024 administration, then you could really bring about some fundamental change. I hope so. Those numbers, those years just feel so far away when we keep seeing reports on how we have, you know, 12 years to turn everything around and then 11 and now 10 years to turn things around. And I think for the youth, it's so frustrating to hear Biden say, and maybe that we actually trusted him to build back better and make change, and then to see him go with Vilsack instead of Marsha Fudge. And I would love to talk a little bit about Marsha Fudge, who was a close contender and who is now named Secretary for Housing and Urban Development, which is a very odd choice. It, it felt like a slap in the face to folks. I was reading, I assume it's correct, that in an earlier interview, they were asking uh, Marsha Fudge about, you know, why she was interested or if she was interested in being Secretary of Agriculture. And she said, yes, she was. And they asked her why. Of course, she's been on the Agriculture Committee and things like that. But she said she thought it was about time for African-Americans to be put in positions in administrations that typically had been reserved basically for old white men. <laughs> 
she said that uh, African Americans typically end up in places like house and urban development or some other kind of welfare or social program, but they rarely get named to positions that are generally considered to be, you know, more about the commercial sector or economic sector like agriculture would be. And so I, I think it would have been perceived, and I hopefully it would have turned out appropriately, that we would have had a much better chance for bringing about fundamental change under a secretary of agriculture that came from the food security perspective. Because I've always argued the only real logical justification to have farm policy separate from economic development policy or commerce or whatever it is, the only real justification is that agriculture, farming, is essential to provide food security, which is a public issue, is making sure that everybody has enough good, good, healthful food to support healthy lifestyles is the way food security is defined. And so whatever happens in the Department of Agriculture with respect to farming or food stamps or anything else ought to be focused on food security, and we ought to be paying attention to food quality and food equity and food justice, and those kind of issues should be there. And so if we'd had a Secretary of Agriculture that came from the perspective of food security and food equity, then we would have had a much easier task, it would seem, to get the Department of Agriculture oriented toward its logical mission of making sure that everybody has enough good food. Yeah, and people don't realize that nutrition and SNAP is a huge part of the budget for the Farm Bill. I think nutrition is like 80% of the Farm Bill with SNAP being a big majority of that. And so that's one of the most important issues in this country. I still have a hard time trying to figure out why more people don't care about this. We have a lot of foodies. We have a lot of people who care about cooking or the taste of food, but nobody seems to care about people producing it. Nobody seems to care about all these larger structural issues in the food system. Why do you think that is? I don't really know. I would like to see uh, some kind of revised studies of of how much money is actually spent on public relations. I would call it propaganda campaigns to try to convince the American people that we have the greatest food system in the world and that we have some, some food is so plentiful and food is so cheap that no one should ask any questions about the American food system. When at the same time, the statistics are readily available that show even before the, the pandemic set in and with supposedly a almost full employment economy, we, we had about 11% of the people in this country that were classified as food insecure and about 14% of the food insecure homes were homes that had children in them. And if you think that the food insecure homes with children probably had more children than the average, then we're talking about 15 to 20% of the children are probably living in food insecure homes, meaning they're not sure that they're going to have enough money to have enough food to get from one payday or one welfare check or wherever they're getting your money, they're not sure they're going to have enough food. And that's with all the money we're currently spending on food assistance programs that you talked about before, something like 80% of the USDA budget. So that, that whole area isn't working. You may feel like the food system is working when you're going to the grocery store and you have this abundance and variety of food spread out in front of you, but that's not working for the people that we need to be providing food security for. So we need a, a fundamental change in, in those kind of programs. But people in general, the taxpayer consumers in general, think, well, gee, we got a great food system. It's working very well. Well, we saw during the 
COVID crisis that it doesn't always work as well as we think it does. The industrial food system is very fragile. I think there's a conscious sort of public relations propaganda campaign to say there's nothing wrong with agriculture. The industrial agriculture system is working just fine. Even though it's polluting the environment, we have water pollution problems, we have public health issues that are associated with it. There's nothing wrong with the agricultural system, even though our rural communities are drying up and dying as the family farmers are forced off the land. And there's nothing wrong with the food system for consumers, even though we have high levels of hunger. And, and the other problem is the food that people can't afford to eat, even the more affluent people are eating food. That's led to an epidemic of obesity and high blood pressure and heart disease and diabetes and a whole range of cancers that are associated with the diet. And we have a, a food system that's basically failing in every aspect of providing food security and supporting people as farmers and members of rural communities. But yet the general public perception is that there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, so somehow or other, we need to address that fallacy and break through with actual data and facts, which is readily available through the USDA and other government agencies. Everything I'm talking about here, the specific figures to back this up are readily available if anybody wants to go and look for them. Yeah. Like you said, it's a fragile food system, and we're really seeing that with COVID and the amount of farm workers that have gotten COVID and the amount of meat packers and how there's this pressure on them to just keep going and going. We know that if they get sick, our entire system could collapse. On the people that we pay the least, the least amount of money, the people we treat the worst, if they're unable to work, this entire system would collapse. And if you have enough food to eat and you don't think that these policies affect you, they do because we need these workers. The propaganda, I was just listening to a talk yesterday and people are still using this whole idea of we, and given this was coming from a chemical company giving this talk, but they were saying we need to produce more food to feed the world. You know, we need more chemicals, all of these things. And if you go to the website of Bayer or Syngenta or Cargill or, ADM, it's all of their slogans. It's about sustainability. It's about feeding the world. And a lot of people still buy into that, that we don't have enough food right. to feed the world. And and the thing is, is that uh, the problem isn't that we don't have enough feed to food the world, feed the food to feed the world. In fact, we're already producing more than enough food for everybody. We're already producing more than enough calories so that everybody in the world could have a more than a sufficient diet from a standpoint of calories anyway. The problem is that the distribution of food. And even in the in the United States, people don't realize this, but if you look back over the past 20 years, between 1970 and 1990, when we industrialized agriculture, the percentage of income we spent on food actually went down. It went down from about 19% down to less than 10%. But since the 1990s, late 1990s, the past 20 years, food prices have gone up faster than overall inflation rates. And the percentage spent on foods has, has been about basically stable at around 9 to 10 percent. So whatever increases in productivity or increases in benefits haven't been reflected in consumer prices at all. And it's not a matter of not being able to produce enough, which they would tell you, we've got to have industrial agriculture because we've got to produce more and more and more. We've been burning about 40 percent of the corn crop in this country, turning it into ethanol to put in our cars. And why do we do that? Because those of us that are driving can pay more for going back for ethanol that goes back to the corn, pay more for the corn than poor people can pay 
to get land set aside and produce food for them. And about 20% of what we produce in this country is exported. And it's not exported to the hungry countries of the world. It's exported to those countries that have increasingly affluent components within their society, and most of it's feed grains to go into animal production because they're shifting from more of a grain diet to more of an animal diet in this country. So it's not feeding the poor people in the poor countries or the poor people even in the, the risingly affluent countries. So we've learned, if we've learned nothing else from this experiment in industrial agriculture of the past uh, 50 to 60 years, is that you can't deal with food security issues, you can't deal with hunger by simply trying to make agriculture more efficient. Because the problem is most people that are hungry are hungry because they're poor. And within a market economy, then you're always going to be diverting whatever is produced to the people that can afford to pay the highest price rather than the people that need it most. And that's a very reality of how economies work and what agriculture is all about. And the other thing a lot of people don't realize is that 70 to 80% of the people in the world today are not fed by industrial agriculture. They're fed by small family farms, probably 50% of those we would call subsistence farms. And we already have research, most of it developed in other parts of the world that have been applied in Africa and South America and other countries that have food insecurity problems. And we know that we could double or triple the yields on those farms using principles of agroecology and permaculture, nature farming, not industrial agriculture. But that would mean that we would be helping those farmers and those people feed themselves, which wouldn't create markets for agricultural products, and that's the reason we don't support it. And those people don't need chemicals or fertilizer. They just need to be managing soils, rebuilding soils, and healthy, productive soils. And, and from that, integrated crop and livestock systems, you could provide food security for the world but it wouldn't be an industrial system and it wouldn't create profits for the investors. And that's the reason we don't promote it, my opinion. Yeah, yeah. But, but Mackenzie, I don't, I don't want you to get pessimistic though. You're talking about young people. Young people need to realize that this system that, that we created, that we have today, basically was created in a period of about 50 to 60 years at most, mainly 40 to 50 years between the 1970s and the 1990s most of the fundamental change from an independent family farm, agriculture, and viable rural communities that were integrated with and worked with those family farmers, from that transition of the like 50s, 60s, early 60s, to what we have today in terms of industrial agriculture system basically happened between the 70s and the 90s for the most part. But we can, we can have a fundamental change in a, in a very different direction and part of what brought about the change from kind of what I would call a more sustainable family farm agriculture, industrial agriculture, was a fundamental change in farm policies that began in the 60s, but mainly in the 1970s. And when we, when we change farm policies and begin to absorb the risk that's inherent in industrial agriculture with crop insurance and price, price supports, and, and uh, then we begin to subsidize investments with investment credits and things of that nature, preferential tax credits for investments in agriculture and large-scale agricultural systems. When we changed that whole range of farm policies, then we made it possible for them to use those technologies that come out of World War II, the chemical technologies for fertilizers, pesticide. We, we made it possible. We absorbed the risk of that transition, and we continue to absorb the risk of that industrial system, and that's the only thing that keeps it alive. And if we had a 
a fundamental change in farm policy, we have the know-how to transfer agriculture to a more sustainable, regenerative, resilient, resourceful agricultural system if we could get the change in farm policy. So I don't want young people to become discouraged because I think the key is, is for young people to say, hey, you created this system that may last through until you old people are gone, but it's not gonna last for our generation and we want something better. And that's what you hear in the climate change movement. I think we need to hear that in the agricultural policy movement. Totally, totally. It's so recent. All these changes are so recent. And at the same time, this country was founded on slavery and we're just seeing different forms of racism and colonialism and capitalism taking place. And even though the chemicals might be recent and the new technologies might be recent, it's just different forms of racism and and modern day slavery that we're seeing in this system. But I I think on the positive side of that, and I've written and talked a good bit about the Green New Deal. If you go look at the Green New Deal, the, the legislation, a lot of people just tend to focus on the climate change part of it and carbon sequestration, reduced dependence on fossil energy. And those are important parts. But it's really about the larger issues that deal with issues of social equity and injustice and so on. It talks about defining a new Green New Deal in terms of saying that everyone has has a basic human right uh, to helpful food, clothing, shelter, and and a, and a clean environment and an opportunity to make a living. It's it's saying that everyone has a right to these things, and it's the responsibility of the government to ensure those rights. And it deals specifically with issues of people that have been marginalized in the past, discriminated against, exploited in the past. And government has a responsibility to address that past exploitation and discrimination. And it names in the Green New Deal, it means uh, rural people among those classes of people, in general, rural people among those classes of people that have been exploited. And they've been exploited by the industrialization of agriculture, again, in my opinion. So, you had enough political clout to at, at least get this legislation proposed. And virtually all of the Democratic candidates for government, I'm not talking just purely politics here, I'd, I'd be saying any presidential candidate that supported the Green New Deal in general was saying that they felt that there was sufficient public support that by supporting the Green New Deal, even appearing to support it, it was good for their campaign. It was good in terms of helping them get elected. And these people that are politically astute, and they had a sense that the American people are in a position that they could move in that direction, given adequate incentives and motivation that they could be moved. And when you look at where we are today and, and getting that kind of legislation, and the legislation like Cory Booker and others have been proposing that deal with agriculture, you look back 30 years ago, there was no possibility that any politician would, would have proposed anything like that. The few of us on the fringe in the, you know, the early organic movement, sustainability movement, you know, we were considered to be too radical to even be relevant in policy discussions back then. And so a lot of progress has been made and a lot of groundwork has been laid here. Yeah. So if you come on and really start a, a movement, we have the foundation for fundamental change if we can just bring about the, the change to realize that uh, the potential. Yeah, I think that's what's so powerful about the youth movement is 
we aren't jaded because we almost don't know what's not possible. And that's why I'm incredibly inspired that you have stayed so hopeful, seeing everything that you have throughout your life. And I think, yeah, it, it gets you excited to see all the changes that are happening now. And it gets me excited. And I think the youth come in, all we know is that we don't have time to to sit around and make incremental changes and we have to go for the big stuff. And I think that's the reason why the Green New Deal was so popular. That's why so many people were willing, politicians were willing to support it is because they knew that they weren't going to have the youth vote. Otherwise, they weren't going to have the vote of a lot of different communities that are being affected by climate change. And I think the just transition piece is so key here because a lot of times environmentalists can be seen as anti-jobs because we want to shut down this power plant. We want to shut down this coal plant. And actually, nobody is anti-jobs. And if anything, we're thinking about how to just rebuild and create millions of new jobs, renewable energy and sustainable agriculture and so on. And so I think that just transition piece is really key and just being able to frame that to rural communities and, and listen to what people think and need and fear and to kind of be able to like frame this vision in, in a way that works and makes sense for people. So I'm incredibly inspired and proud of the youth movement, but I'm just going to come out and say it. I'm very disappointed that there's not more youth fighting for a better food system. I don't know why that is. I, I'm going to do everything that I can to try and figure out how to get more people involved. I, I love the Sunrise Movement. I'm very active in the Sunrise Movement, but I can't figure out why People weren't getting behind. There wasn't a huge youth movement to get behind Marsha Fudge. We should be so angry about Vilsack. We should be in the streets about this. And I know, you know, we're focused on Department of the Interior right now and and getting Deb Holland for that. And that's so incredibly important. But so is the food system. And, And nobody seems to be talking about that except for the same few folks that are always talking about it. One of the keys maybe and where I'm focusing more of my attention is the focus on the issue of hunger. Because I don't know of any place that it's, it's more clearly apparent the failure of the industrial food system and the failure of current government programs. And that includes the, uh, the food assistance programs as well as the agricultural programs. The food assistance programs were initially put in under the, the realization that some people would not still would not have access to food, even if we improved the efficiency of agriculture to the point we brought down the cost of food. That was the realization. But it was meant to be a very small part of the overall Department of Agriculture. And the Department of Agriculture and the kind of agriculture we had and the kind of food system we had was supposed to meet the needs of most everybody. And then the food stamp programs would come in. I think the basic problem that I handed out before that we can get to with hunger is that the economy, the market, will not feed hungry people, as I've kind of gone into before. Economics, the market, economic value is inherently determined by the scarcity of something, not by necessity, not by need. And the only way you can make food scarce and therefore valuable is if you need food, but you all have also have money to pay for it. If you're hungry but don't have any money, you're not you're not an effective part of the demand for food and you don't have any influence on price and therefore you're not going to get fed. And and the reason we don't do that is because today's economy, when we talk about economic value, it's a transaction value. It's an impersonal transaction of buying and selling. We buy food. We don't go to the farmers and get it from them directly or personally. We, we buy food. They don't 
feed us directly, personally, for the most part, they sell uh, agricultural products. So it's, it's this impersonal nature of this market transaction, this economic transaction that separated us from the idea that people are hungry, but also is the reason the market don't feed people. Now, what I'm getting around to is that we've created government programs that are almost as impersonal as the markets. When we simply give people, you know, a snap card or something, that's almost like an economic transaction. We're not really concerned about whether or not people get nutritious food or it's not telling where we get nutritious food. There may be certain things you can't buy with it. It's not individual in the sense of one person's needs might be different than another person's needs. We, we've kind of turned our food assistance programs into impersonal transactions just like markets. And so people are still hungry even though we have them. We need to personalize those food security programs by relocalizing food systems. And we need new food policies as well as new farm policies. But I think if we focus on the hunger issue, we can point out the failures of industrial agriculture and also the need to fundamentally transform and change food policies. And, and, and if we begin to change the conversation around where we talk about hunger and how we address that and what changes we need, then I, th I think people can get inspired. If you talk about this country that's the richest country in, in the world, or at least one of the richest countries in the world, and probably in the current situation, we probably have more than 20% of the kids in this country that are actually hungry, that they're missing meals, they're giving up meals under the situation. And even in the best of times, we have 15 to 20% of the children that are in food insecure homes. That's just inexcusable. And I think young people can understand that perhaps better than old people. Maybe the old people have become callous in terms of thinking, well, the hunger or the poor will always be among us. Well, I say, yeah, the poor will always be among us because there's some people that are inherently incapable through no fault of their own of earning enough to buy enough good food. But that doesn't mean the hungry will always be among us because the rest of us can earn enough to make sure that nobody goes hungry. Yeah, and the food security anti-hunger movement feels very separate right now from the sustainable agriculture movement. And you're right, they should be one and the same because if we, ways that we would tackle hunger is by investing in these communities. And these communities, they already know what they want. And they already, a lot of people in these communities know how to grow food. They just need people to invest in them and they need resources. And when you talk to a lot of food system leaders in the community, they say, we grew up having a garden, not because we thought it was cool or trendy, but because that's what my grandmother did because we didn't, we couldn't afford to buy food. And so we grew our own. And so for a lot of people, it's already really embedded in, in the culture. Right. And then I think with the COVID crisis, it's kind of reminded people that they would be a lot more secure if they could earn more of their own. And, and going back to, we were talking about Tom Vilsack before, one of the positive things about his earlier administrations was that he he did allocate funds to uh, support local food programs and allocated funds to support small farmers and value-added processing on farms. A lot of those funds got siphoned off to other places, but he had programs during that period of time, so he must have some sensitivity to these issues from before, and perhaps that's a, an opening where we, we could really focus on the hunger issue, and maybe since uh, Marsha Fudge was... Uh, considered very strongly by the progressive community. You could 
use that as also a lever with him and say, look, there was a strong group of people out here that didn't want you to be secretary of agriculture because they were afraid you wouldn't address the food security issues and the hunger issues and the minority issues. Now prove to those people, prove to us that you are in fact sensitive to these issues. And so let's, let's start talking about more emphasis on food security within the Department of Agriculture, more emphasis on local foods, more emphasis on producing more and marketing within the local community and small scale processing as opposed to these giant processing operations. So perhaps there's a, an opening, a, a lever point where you could go in in this current administration and make some major changes. Yeah, I think we're really going to need to push him on race because you can't solve hunger. They're not separate things. You can't solve hunger without also tackling this issue of there's been so much land loss within the African-American community and things like reparations and giving land back. Just like you were saying how hunger and and agriculture need to be tied together, I think we're really going to need to push him on the race factor. I'd like to just touch on that for a little bit. Can you tell us why a lot of leaders of black farming groups and associations very upset about Vilsack. What is this about his record on race? Well, I think a lot of it goes back to it's more of the same. And agriculture policies that supported industrial agriculture basically just squeeze black farmers off of the land, the family farmers off the land, but also a lot of white farmers also, but because black farmers were being discriminated against in other areas of the society, then they were less able to hold on to land. You know, about half of the farmers we have out here today don't really make money farming. They're able to make enough money somewhere else to continue to hold on to the farm because the farm is a good way of of life. And I think a lot of uh, people from the African-American communities didn't have the the opportunities elsewhere that they could continue to hold on to the land like a lot of the white farmers did. So I think they see Vilsack as kind of a continuation of the policies of the past. But also, you've gone through a long history in the Department of USDA of discrimination against African-American farmers. And there was one lawsuit, I can't remember the names of them, but prior to the Vilsack administration, that was probably the biggest settlement where they went through and and showed that there was systemic uh, discrimination against African-Americans, particularly in the South. There's there's still this history within USDA of discrimination, particularly against African-Americans, but I suspect against all minority farmers. And that's because those programs, I think, uh, even at the county level, there's this perception that the kind of agriculture these small farmers and minority farmers are involved in, that's really not farming. I, I heard that so often about the early organic movement and alternative agriculture movement and the CSAs and people that produce for farmers markets. Well, you're not really farmers. You're kind of hobby people and things of that nature. So when they talk about government programs and administering those, they're thinking, well, these are here for the real farmers. So we're not going to worry much about whether or not these other farmers survive because they're not real farmers and it doesn't really matter whether they survive or not. So that's some of the, the, the reasons I see. Now, if you talk to somebody that's actually been subjected to that discrimination, you might get a different answer and it might be much more accurate. And I think the lawsuit you were referring to, Pigford versus Glickman, right? Yeah. The 1999 class action against the USDA for racial discrimination against African-American farmers. And we wrote a memo for Data for Progress earlier this year talking about how throughout the 20th century, 
farmers of color were systematically denied loans and credit, lacked access to legal defense against fraud, and also experienced outright acts of violence and intimidation. And this resulted in a 90% loss of Black-owned farmland. Right. So I think, yes, so, land is lost for, for Black and for white people, but 90% land loss for Black-owned farms right. is insane. Another thing I think that we ought to mention when you're talking about young people involved in agricultural policy and how we need to get more is that uh, we need to talk about the people that are developing these programs on the Green New Deal and others. That's a large majority of those that I've encountered are young people that are, are involved. And I think it's a good place for young people to become involved with other people that have similar backgrounds, similar age, similar futures. Yeah. I would love to kind of finish every episode talking about what we can do. What is something that you and I can both do after we leave these episodes to make change and encourage other people to make change? Because if you're listening to this, you might not know how the heck you're going to single-handedly affect Vilsack and his decisions. So how can listeners engage in the community and make change? Well, I think one of the most important things is to pick something an area in which you have an interest, an area that touches you of something that really needs to be done. And then the realization, which I think is important right now, is that we do have a new farm bill coming up in 2023. And that now is the time to begin to kind of lay the foundation of the public interest, public input into the process of sort of developing that agenda. So you have an opportunity now that we won't have an opportunity in 20. 21, 2022, because you'll already have a lot of people that have staked out solid positions of what they're going to support and what they're not going to support. So now is the time, I think, to get involved. And the other thing, recommendation I have to people, again, internet's a wonderful thing for those of you that have never lived without it. The days before it came along, information wasn't that easy to get. But go on and just Google farm policy advocacy group or progressive farm policy advocacy groups or something along that nature that has to do with farm policies, sustainable farm policies, whatever. And you'll come up with a whole long list of different organizations that are involved in the policy process. There are advocacy groups that are involved in one way or another in the farm policy issue. And then go down that list and find something on there that's close to you, familiar to you, or just go through and look at a few of their websites and say, this kind of touches me, or I can connect with this, and then contact them. Because all these organizations out here that are involved in policy issues, they keep up with the legislation, they're gonna keep up with the progress on the farm bill all the way through. And if you register with them or let them give uh, give them your email address, they will keep you informed and they would love to have you engaged. And so it is easy to get engaged once you make a commitment and say, look, I want to get involved in this and then find a particular aspect of it that you're really passionate about and then find an organization that you feel comfortable with that's going to promote that particular agenda. And I think you're in for as as much time and energy as you want to put into the process. Yeah, and if you need ideas, reach out to us, contact us. When we set up this podcast, we will put a way for you to get in touch and we can point you to some organizations doing great work. And also, if you want to hear of, of anything specific, you want to see certain guests on this show, 
please write into us because we're open to discussing anything related to food. For me, one thing that I want to do is go back to these youth organizations and plant these seeds about how important and how intersectional these issues of food and labor and climate, how they're all connected and get more young people excited about the farm bill. We have, like John said, 2023. That's why this podcast is called Agenda 23. We have a couple of years now to prepare to fight for everything that we want and that we need in this farm bill. And so we're trying to engage you now. We hope that if you're listening to this, maybe you've never thought about how your food is produced or where it comes from. And now we're slowly getting y'all engaged in these issues. And so we're very excited. Any last words, John? No, I think it's just going to be interesting to see what kind of issues that people are interested in and what kind of issues tend to catch on with people, because I think that's the way you get an insight into where the potential is to really change things, is if you get a sense of what will connect with people, what what are they concerned about, what are they willing to put some attention into. And none of us are smart enough to know these things on our own. We all need, we're all interconnected and we need to listen to and help each other. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, next episode, we will be talking about Justice for Black Farmers Act and just more on the history of discrimination in the USDA when it comes to all socially disadvantaged farmers, including African-American farmers and all, all these things. And so tune in next time. And until then, reach out to us for suggested topics and guests. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.